Well, it is good to be with you as we worship the Lord together. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19 is where we will be at this morning. Now, uh, here at FBC, we, we approach preaching um, a particular way, right? We are committed to going verse by verse through the scriptures. And so we'll pick a, pick a book and we'll go through it verse by verse all the way through, um, not skipping any sections of that particular book, right? But just going all the way through because all of God's word, of course, is necessary for us. All of it's profitable. All of it is inspired. All of it's sufficient. And we call that expository preaching. We, we go one verse at a time, we explain what the Bible says, we explain how it applies to life. Um, we want to teach all of God's Word. Now, one of the benefits, I would say, challenging benefits about approaching preaching that way is it requires us to deal with everything the Bible says. And it does not allow us to skip the topics that are hard, that are uncomfortable, or that are challenging for us, right? Um, which ultimately is is good for us, right? Because our goal as Christians should be to see things from God's perspective. Where do we get God's perspective? Right here in the Bible, right? And so our expository preaching method has brought us to one of those challenging sections this morning, looking at marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness. Um, Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch politician and a Christian who's very famous for his quote, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not an inch in the whole domain of our existence, over which Christ does not, cry, uh, does not cry, mine. That belongs to me. I'm sovereign over that. Everything, right? Everything. It's a central belief of Christianity uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That he has uh, not just something to say, but the authority to say something about everything in our lives including the topics of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and singleness, um, which is what our passage this morning is all about. Uh, now, before we read our text, I want to just kind of set the stage a little bit. Um, divorce and remarriage, and, and even marriage and singleness, right, of course, can be complicated, messy, a very sensitive and, and sometimes painful topics. Um, so the, these are not necessarily easy things to discuss. They're not necessarily easy things to, uh, to hear from God's Word. And I don't want to ignore that as a pastor and a preacher, right, how difficult these topics can be. Um, and the passage we're going to be looking at this morning raises all kinds of what-if questions, right? What if this happened in my past, or what if this situation's going on right now? Um, what do I do now, right? It's going to raise all kinds of questions like that because these are messy topics, and I'm not going to be able to answer all of those hypothetical questions today, right, because there's really infinite, right, there's, there's so many that could come up. Um, hopefully, we'll be able to answer some, uh, but my goal this morning is to help you understand what Jesus teaches on these topics, right, to help you as a Christian understand what God's Word says about these topics, um, and as Christians, all of us must submit to Christ's teaching, amen? Amen, even when it's tough, right? And as a preacher, I, I am obligated to preach what Jesus says without apology, without apology, right? So if you have, if you have questions, struggles, concerns, or even flat-out disagreements, right, with what you hear this morning, come talk to me after service, right? Come talk to me after service. And I, I know these can be tough topics. I want to do the best I can to help you navigate what God's Word says about that. Does that sound fair? 
Okay, very good. Well, let's go ahead and read our text, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 19. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. <clears throat> and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive this. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me as we hear it this morning? Our Lord and our God, uh, you are the creator. Lord, you are the God who created all things, including us. Uh, Lord, including the definition of our relationships, uh, including marriage. And Lord, in this text, you make clear to us uh, the sacredness and, and, and the high regard that you have for marriage. Now, Lord, a serious and weighty thing because ultimately it is a picture of the love that Christ has for his church. Lord, an image that should be untarnished. Uh, but Lord, as we live in this world that is filled with sin, uh, Lord, we find that that picture is, is often masked and marred. But Lord, we pray that you would help us this morning as, as we live in a culture that... Um, at times even rejoices over divorce. Lord, would you help us to be shaped by your word, not by our culture? Would you help our thoughts to be directed by your word, and not by our society? And Lord, would you help us to think biblically about these topics? And Lord, we, we may wrestle with them, and we pray for your help in wrestling with them. Now, Lord, give us hearts that are, are soft and ready to receive the word. And please, Holy Spirit, come and help us. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. There's, there's really three main sections of this text, uh, three main topics that Jesus addresses here. First, he addresses the nature of marriage, verses 1 through 5. And he moves from there to look at the departure of divorce in verses 6 through 9, and finally the service of singleness in verses 10 through 12. And, and as we see this, we see there's, there's not a single person here um, who is excluded from these different categories of human relationship. Right? Everybody's either single Married or divorced, right? So what Jesus has to say to us this morning, it really is for all of us. Now, we came to the end of Matthew 18 last week as Jesus finished his dialogue on the nature of discipleship, church discipline, uh, forgiveness. And as we look at verses 1 and 2 of our text this morning, we see that uh, Jesus has no longer any teaching to do in Capernaum. Right? He's ready to leave, and he and his disciples uh, go from Capernaum. They go out of the region of Galilee, and they enter the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. There's a little bit of question on where exactly this is, um, but 
Jesus is probably crossing the Jordan River and heading south on the eastern side towards Jericho and, and eventually Jerusalem, right? That's his main target right now. And as we've seen many times in, in verse 2, um, large crowds begin to follow him. Um, and we'll actually see some of the individuals from these crowds later on as we go through Matthew 19. Um, but it, as usual, Jesus heals them. He heals their, their illnesses. He probably is casting out demons. And he is uh, caring for them. And while Jesus is doing this, while he's healing these crowds, we see in verse 3 that Pharisees come up to him and they have, a, they have an agenda. They have a goal, right? The Pharisees have been keeping tabs on Jesus. They know where he's going. They know where he's been. Um, news of his whereabouts is traveling fast. And they are seeking an opportunity for his downfall. And it's with that motivation that they come up to Jesus here to test him, to ensnare him, to entrap him. They're trying to trip him up. Right? They, they ask him a question. And this isn't a sincere question. They already have their own answer in mind to the question. Um, and the question is this. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And, and right here, the issue of divorce is set on the table. Right? Um, in ancient Jerusalem, everybody generally agreed, um, excuse me, in ancient Judaism, everybody generally agreed um, that divorce was permissible. The debate was about when divorce was permissible. The debate was about when divorce was permissible. Um, in, in other words, the question is about what constitutes the biblical grounds for divorce. That's really what the Pharisees are, are asking. That's the challenge they're putting out there to Jesus. Um, can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Right? Really getting at that last part, for any cause. And this really all centers around Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. And we'll look at that a, a little bit later. But it describes a scenario in which um, a man takes his wife and marries her uh, and then finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That's verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24. And the question that the rabbis were debating about in Jesus' day is, what is that indecency? What's that referred to? Um, you see, in Jesus' day, there were two schools of thought. One rabbi um, taught that an indecency was anything the man didn't like. Right? Anything the man didn't like, you can, you can divorce your wife. You don't like her cooking, she burns the food, you can divorce her. Right? You don't like how she dressed today, you can divorce her. These are not exaggerated examples, right? These are actually ones that were used in, in the rabbinic discussions, right? Any cause, anything the man did not like about his wife, send her away. And, and this view was probably the popular view amongst the common people. Probably the pop popular view amongst the common people. The other view was that marital unfaithfulness, right? Adultery was what indecency referred to, and, and that marital unfaithfulness was the only grounds for divorce, right? That was the more conservative school, probably not the more popular opinion of the day. And really what the Pharisees are doing here is demanding an interpretation from Jesus of the law, right? They're appealing to the law, but they're saying, Jesus, you tell us what the answer is. You tell us how we should interpret that. We have this debate going on. Why don't you settle it for us, Jesus? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? They want him to interpret the law. But, but we, you know, we, we, we can't make the mistake of thinking this is an outdated question. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? This isn't archaic. This isn't a question that just belongs to first century Jews. Um, this is an extremely relevant 
question. Right? The question of whether divorce can happen for any reason at all is directly applicable to we who live in a society where no-fault divorces are the norm and where divorce happens for any and every reason under the sun. So Jesus' answer to this question speaks very clearly to us today in the 21st century. Right? We should really be asking the same question the Pharisees are in a way, right? if we want to get to the bottom of it. Uh, but Jesus isn't going to play by the Pharisees' rules. He rarely does. He's going to answer on his own terms. And so he gets right to the heart of the matter in verse 4. And the heart of the matter is not the nature of divorce. It's the nature of marriage. That's the most important thing to figure out here. It's not the nature of divorce. It's the nature of marriage. That's where Jesus goes. He goes to define what marriage is. And, and so he doesn't go to Deuteronomy. He actually goes to Genesis. And we look at verse 4, he says to them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, to the very, very beginning. right? And that's an important thing to recognize because what Jesus is saying here doesn't just apply to Jews who are under the Mosaic law. The realities we see in Genesis chapter 1 apply to all humanity. These are realities built into the creation, regardless of religion, ethnicity, or, or any other factor. So what Jesus says applies to all of us, every people, every place, every time. And, and he begins by saying, have you not read, right? Reminding them that all these are elementary truths. All these things he's about to say are, are, are basic, fundamental things at the very beginning of the scriptures. And then he references Genesis 1.27 here in verse 4, uh, which says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's where Jesus goes. Genesis 1.27. And this is really the first part of Jesus' answer. Um, and it establishes two important realities. Two important realities we see here that lay a foundation for a biblical understanding of marriage. So the first is, God created human beings. That's the first thing we see in Jesus' answer. God created human beings. Well, why is that important? It's important because... As our creator, he has a purposeful design for us as human beings. It means that he gets to define us. He gets to define our relationships. Culture changes. Culture does not get to define us. Human laws don't get to define us. Ultimately, God gets to call the shots. It's a good thing when, when law and culture align with what God says, right? That's a good thing. But it is not a place of authority in culture and law. Right? God is the one who has the authority. He is the one that gets to define what marriage is. So that's the first reality. God created human beings. He gets to call the shots. The second reality we see in Jesus' answer here in verse 4 is that God created human beings a certain way, male or female. Male or female. This is a fundamental reality for marriage. All of humanity is composed of human beings who, according to their chromosomes, are either male or female, right? And, and there are occasions where uh, DNA doesn't work right and there may be um, you know, intersex conditions or things like that, but that's not God's original design, right? That's uh, a defect in God's design. So all of humanity is composed of these two categories, male or female. Biblically, sex and gender are the same. Sex and gender are the same. It's a big uh, issue of debate in our culture today. Um, your sex defines your gender. Who gave you your sex? Well, God did. Right? God determined whether you were going to be male or female. Um, you, you don't get to decide God got it wrong. 
right? Um, your sex is your gender identity according to the Bible. So these two, these two realities are really important. God's the creator, he calls the shots, and God made us male and female. And, and these two parts, male and female, are complementary, right? Meaning they're, they're different, but they're made to go together. Uh, men and women are equal in worth and dignity before God, but God has made men and women different. Different physical bodies, different general characteristics, different roles in the family, right? Different um, particular abilities and giftings, um, but, but complementary at the same time. Two different parts that together provide a whole picture, right? And it's a good picture. It's a good picture. And, and, and even people who are not Christians recognize this. For example, the benefit of having both a mom and a dad in the home. Oh man, that has such a positive impact on a child. That's huge, right? You know, even non-believers can recognize, okay, there's a good effect from God's design, right? Um, now, it's a backdrop of these two realities that, in verse 5, um, Jesus quotes Genesis again, right? Against this backdrop, he quotes Genesis again, this time from Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God creates man and woman, male and female, who then enter into this relationship of marriage. Right? That's what this is here. Marriage. These two complementary parts fit together into one new relationship. The man and the woman are joined together. Right? Uh, notice in the text here in verse 5, there's a separation from previous family. Right? What's the most important relationship once a marriage is formed? It's that marriage. Right? That's the most important relationship, not other family relationships, not even the relationship between a husband and wife and their children. The marriage is the most important relationship here. Notice, too, that a marriage, again, is between one man and one wife. There's no other people in the picture here. And we know, of course, there are people in the Bible who have more than one wife, um, and it never goes well. Right? It never goes well. Good things do not happen from that. There's usually a lot of fighting and problems and, and issues. This is God's good original design right here. One man, one woman, united together in marriage. And Jesus says that the reality accomplished in marriage is that these two become one flesh. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means they're joined together physically in sexual intimacy. It means they're joined together um, in their unified partnership for their home and family. It means they're joined together financially. It means they're joined together in a spiritual sense as well. And, and, and keep in mind here, this is the ideal. This is God's original intention. It may not reflect your experience with marriage. Okay? So this is God's design. This is the ideal. This is if sin's out of the picture, this is what we'd see. And that's a good thing, right? Um, now, even when our experience may not reflect this, the spiritual realities of it are still there, right? So in the marriage, the two become one, one flesh, one life, unity, and union. And there's a controversial aspect to this that's, that's very important. I'm sorry, not controversial, covenantal aspect. Very big difference there. There is a covenantal aspect to this that's very important. A marriage, as God designed it, is a commitment to uphold your responsibilities in the marriage and love your spouse regardless of how well they keep up their end of the deal. Right? Uh, there's a difference between a contract and a covenant. There's a difference between a contract and a covenant. So 
we, we all have cell phones or internet or cable TV, right? You have a contract with those providers, right? You say, okay, I'm going to enter into this relationship with you. As long as you give me service, I'll give you money. And your provider says, as long as you give me money, I'll give you service. Okay, we know what the terms are. We're working this out, okay? Um, marriage is often approached that way in our society. As long as you make me happy, I'll stay in the marriage. Okay, well, as long as you make me happy, I'll, that's a contract, right? That's an exchange of goods for services. That's not God's design for marriage. It's very different than a covenant. A covenant says, I will do this for you no matter what. Regardless of what you do or do not give me, I'm going to be faithful to my end of the deal. Um, the, the traditional wedding vows that are often taken in marriages reflect that, right? For better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. Um, I don't think there's a single person who's ever been married who all of their expectations were completely fulfilled in their marriage. Where things turned out exactly how they thought they were right. I don't think that's happened for a single person who's ever been married. That's why the covenantal aspect of this is so important. But it is covenantal. It's covenantal. And remember here, Jesus is not describing the experience of marriage necessarily. Right? He's describing how God defines marriage. Right? That's an important distinction to make here. And in light of these realities, in light of this definition of the nature of marriage, um, Jesus then concludes in verse 6 that what God has joined together, man should not separate. What God has joined together, man should not separate. And that brings us to our second point, the departure of divorce. So until now, notice Jesus hasn't talked about divorce at all. He's just talked about marriage. And that's really important. right? And his definition of marriage is a covenantal institution with God as its creator, man and woman as its participants, joined together as one, right? Um, that's, a, that's a good thing. Again, God doesn't make anything that's not good. And if God is the one joining together man and woman in this covenantal relationship, um, then again, he gets to define it. He gets to um, qualify it, right? He gets to set the terms for it, right? God basically owns marriage. We could say it that way. Um, marriage is not ultimately defined and determined by the state, by the government, right? We have legal marriage, um, but God did not invent legal marriage. That's not what's happening in Genesis 2, 24. Um, and in the same way, the government does not ultimately join a man or a woman together in marriage. God does that. So based on what we've seen so far, um, ideally, marriage is to be monogamous between one man and one woman. It's to be lifelong, right? That's God's design. I want to make sure we have that really, really down because it's going to impact what Jesus says next. Um, and so if God is the one joining together man and woman, what right does man have to separate that? If, if God is the one who is joining together man and woman, what authority does man have to challenge God's institution? What right does man have to dissolve this covenantal bond? between a man and a woman. That's really what Jesus is saying right here. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's not man's property. Man is trespassing when he seeks to do that. To illustrate it another way, if you were to cut my body in half, I would die, right? There's no way I'm surviving that. It'd be, it'd be the end for me. In the same way to dissolve a one flesh union 
is like murdering the marriage. It's a really serious thing. We don't have the authority to murder other people. God hasn't given us that, right? Justice does not belong to us. And murder, of course, is, is not even just to begin with. Jesus says very clearly, man does not have the authority or the right to separate the one flesh union of marriage through divorce. And we, we see that Jesus takes a negative view of divorce here. Um, he states divorce is contrary to God's design, contrary to God's intent for marriage. Um, and, and this really flies in the face of how we in America view marriage, doesn't it? Um, half of marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. 73% of third marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. Right? In, in America, we have the idea that the state can actually separate what God has joined together. We have no-fault divorce, which means any person in a marriage can file for divorce for any reason. And, and people take advantage of that regularly. Jesus' point is really clear. Only God has the authority to truly recognize a marriage as over. I don't have the authority to do that. You don't have the authority to do that. God has the authority to do that. And, and only him. And so divorce is a departure from God's design. It's a departure from God's design. And the Pharisees, they, they think they have Jesus trapped here. In verse 7, uh, they have a follow-up question for him. They say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And this is another reference to Deuteronomy 24. So let's turn back there and uh, look at that text together real quick, just for a little more context. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. Uh, this is part of the law for Israel, and we read, starting in verse 1, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his, husband, or his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. This is the passage that is at the center of this debate that the Pharisees are having. Now, the Pharisees ask, well, why does Moses command divorce? Well, do we see Moses commanding divorce here in the law? No, we don't. Right? Um, he does not command it. Uh, they're, they're reading into the text something they want to read. The passage isn't commanding divorce. It's not even endorsing divorce. It's regulating divorce and remarriage. It's regulating divorce and remarriage. Um, but this passage does bring up a difficult point, doesn't it? If marriage is so binding and permanent, why does God allow for divorce here in Deuteronomy 24 at all? Right? That's a pretty legitimate question to be asking. And Jesus answers it in verse 8 of Matthew 19. He says to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. That's the answer. Because of the hardness of heart. Because of the sinfulness of, of people. Right? Divorce is not looked on favorably in the Bible anywhere. It's not a good thing. Even when it is permitted. Um, 
but God does allow divorce with qualification to restrain human sinfulness, right? God sets the terms because if there were no terms whatsoever, uh, it would be chaos. One commentator explains it well. In, in Scripture, God sometimes allowed what was less than ideal because people's hard hearts made the ideal unattainable. To be able to exercise some degree of restraint over human injustice, Moses' civil laws regulated some institutions rather than seeking to abolish them altogether, like divorce, uh, polygyny, or polygyny uh, being married to more than one, one wife, the avengers of blood, and, and slavery. Right? Where God says, okay, because of your hardness of heart, I will set better terms on this to protect those involved than what you would do on your own. Divorce is one of those things, right? But we have to realize divorce is always, as Jesus says, caused by hardness of heart. It's always caused by sin somewhere along the line. Now, I'm not saying both parties are equally at fault in a situation like that or that both parties are sinful simply for being involved in something like that. But divorce doesn't happen without sinful hearts, right? It doesn't happen without sin somewhere along the line. It doesn't mean all divorce is sinful, but it means that divorces are in some way, shape, or form caused by sin, right? Whether the sin of another person or our own sin. And then Jesus brings us back to Genesis again at the end of verse 8. From the beginning, it was not so. That's a very important thing Jesus says, right? There was no provision for divorce in the Garden of Eden, as Charles Spurgeon says. Divorce was never part of God's design. He did not invent it. He created marriage, which was good. He did not create divorce. Divorce is a departure from God's original design for marriage that, that sin really brings about. And, and while God does permit divorce under certain circumstances, he's never happy about it. He's never happy about it. He's never happy to see a marriage end up that way. It's, it's not a good thing. Malachi 2.16 goes so far as to say that God hates divorce. It brings him no pleasure to see marriage um, endure such a thing. And all of these things give us the background of what Jesus says here in verse 9. Uh, verse nine excuse me. And I, I know as we've been going through this, uh, for some of you, uh, discomfort or, or difficulty has been building up. And I want to let you know we're going to address some of those things and hopefully bring you some relief uh, through the gospel. Uh, but we do need to deal with what Jesus says here. And in verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now notice how verse 9 begins. And I say to you, that's, that's what Jesus says when he is about to say something with his full authority. Right? He's saying, I'm telling you how it, how it is. Right? I am speaking to you what's true. I'm going to tell you the way you need to view this. And I say to you. And then, of course, he says something very serious. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And, and again, I know this raises some questions and maybe even some concerns. And I want to work through those with you in a moment. Um, but we need, to, we need to soak in this verse for a second here. The only exception that Jesus here in this text, gives for a biblically grounded divorce is what? Sexual immorality, right? And commentators and theologians love to debate about all kinds of things, and this is one of those things, but it seems fairly clear uh, that sexual immorality should be best understood as sexual activity outside the marriage. Sexual activity outside the marriage. 
most commonly, it's going to be adultery. It's going to be an affair, something like that, right? Uh, sexual immorality, Jesus says, is an act which itself tears apart the one flesh relationship of marriage from God's perspective and therefore makes divorce legitimate. Sexual immorality, that's the one thing Jesus mentions here. Now, that doesn't mean that if, if an affair occurs in a marriage and there's genuine repentance over that adultery, that there can't be reconciliation and healing and rebuilding of that marriage. Absolutely, with God's help and grace, that can be possible. So adultery doesn't require divorce, but what Jesus is saying is that it, it permits divorce. And he says the same thing in Matthew chapter 5. The only other exception for divorce that the Bible mentions is in 1 Corinthians 7.15, which speaks of a marriage between a, um, an unbeliever and a believer. And here's what that verse says, 1 Corinthians 7.15, If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister, the believing spouse, is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Those are the two grounds that the Bible gives for divorce. There's nothing else mentioned in all of Scripture. Sexual morality and an unbelieving spouse divorcing a believing spouse. Now why? right? Why does it only say those two things? And, and why does Jesus go so far as to say that to remarry after an unbiblical divorce is to commit an act of adultery? Why is he speaking so strongly here? Well, let's remember what Jesus has said about marriage so far. He's taught that it's a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman joined together by God and that man has no authority to separate what God has joined together. Right? So if divorce occurs for a reason other than sexual immorality, from God's perspective, has the marriage actually been properly dissolved? No. Saying I'm divorcing you to your spouse serving papers does not mean that God is on board with the process. And that's why Jesus says what he does, that to remarry after an unbiblical divorce is to commit adultery. Because in God's eyes, you were technically still married to your former spouse when you married your new one. Right? That's why he says that. Now, again, I realize this presents some, some very difficult questions. Um, mostly because divorce is so common. Right? It's very, very common. Uh, so the first thing I want to say, if you have had an unbiblical divorce or if you've remarried after an unbiblical divorce, right, a divorce for something other than one of those two reasons, there is grace for you. There is grace for you. That's not an unforgivable sin. So I want you to know that now that that doesn't mean you cannot be forgiven. It doesn't mean there is a limit on God's grace for you. It doesn't mean the gospel no longer applies to you. It absolutely does. And if you've been divorced or remarried, I want you to know that you are loved and that you're not going to be stigmatized here at FBC. We want to be faithful to what Jesus says, um, but we also want to recognize that God is a gracious God. He is a kind and forgiving God. And so with that in mind, let's walk through some of the questions that Jesus' words here raise. Now, I, I want to caveat here. What Jesus says is very clear. There's really no way around what Jesus says. right? Um, but the implications that flow out of what Jesus says is where things can get a little messy. So I'm going to give you my pastoral thought on some of these questions. Right? And my hope is that by doing this now, 
I, I maybe won't have so long of a line after service, right? Um, because, you know, these are real questions, right? Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not even trying to be funny. I'm being very serious. Um, my, my goal is to think consistently with the text and to help you do the same. Um, so let's walk through some of these hypotheticals. Number one, what if I had an unbiblical divorce and I've remarried? Does that mean I'm currently committing adultery? That's a legitimate question. Uh, I would say no. The reason why is because the grammar of the Greek, which works a little differently than English, suggests it's not the marriage itself that is adultery, but the initial act of getting remarried. Right? So, if you've been remarried, that doesn't mean your current marriage is adulterous. It would mean the initial act of getting remarried would be, according to Jesus. Now that brings us to the next question. If I had an unbiblical divorce and I've remarried, do I need to leave my current spouse? No. No, it does not mean that, right? If you've remarried after an unbiblical divorce, the solution is not to divorce again. That's not the right way to go. Can we, can we recognize, okay, I didn't divorce for the right reasons. I didn't remarry according to Jesus' teaching. I recognize that. Lord, please forgive me. Help me to honor you as best I can in the marriage that I'm now in. Yeah, that's the way we should approach that, right? We can recognize this was wrong. I was wrong here. We can also recognize, Lord, thank you for forgiving me for that, right? The answer is not to divorce your current spouse. God, God is very gracious to us. He's very kind to us. And, and he is even so gracious at times to provide blessing even despite our sin. Uh, many Christians who are remarried end up remarrying in the Lord and are blessed by having a Christian spouse. God is so incredibly kind to bless people like us who sin. So, you know, we can identify sin as sin while also acknowledging how kind and gracious God has been in, in light of your sin and how much he's blessed you. Maybe this wasn't ideal. Maybe this didn't line up by God's, with God's design. But, wow, how kind you've been to me, Lord, by blessing me with this spouse that I, knew ha I now have, right? And number three, what if my spouse divorced me and I didn't do anything wrong? Can I remarry? Well, there's definitely some debate over that. Um, again, a legal divorce does not mean your marriage is actually over in God's eyes, right? We've seen that in the text. So if your spouse divorces you for unbiblical reasons, according to what Jesus says, the marriage would technically still be in place, right? From God's perspective, you're still married, but there are, again, some exceptions here. So the first is what we see in our text. If your spouse is unfaithful and divorces you, you're free to remarry. Seems to be pretty clearly what Jesus says. The second exception is what we find in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. An unbelieving spouse leaving you as a believer. Uh, that text says you are no longer enslaved. You're free to remarry. Um, the third exception, I think, comes in light of Matthew 19, verse 9. Right, so think through this with me. If your spouse divorces you for an unbiblical reason, and then your spouse remarries, Jesus says that is an act of adultery, right? So if your spouse has just committed an act of adultery, that marriage covenant is now broken, right? They've committed that act by remarrying. And so that would mean the covenant that you had with them is now broken, and that would seem to open the door for you to legitimately remarry, right? If your spouse divorces you and marries somebody else. Um, number four, does this mean I shouldn't get remarried after my unbiblical divorce? Well, it does seem pretty clearly that that's what Jesus is saying. As hard as that is, um, 
that seems to be what Jesus is saying, with the two exceptions, well, three exceptions I, I just mentioned. And again, that's not an easy thing to reckon with, especially in our culture that's so free in regards to marriage and divorce. Um, but apart from those exceptions, Jesus says to remarry after an unbiblical divorce while your spouse is living or single would be considered an act of adultery. That's breaking the sixth commandment. It seems that um, marriage would not be the obedient option, that remarriage would not be the obedient option in such a situation. Right? Jesus calls that, I mean, he calls it adultery. And that, that cannot in and of itself be an obedient thing to do. It doesn't mean it can't be forgiven, right? It doesn't mean God still cannot bless you. Um, but it does mean that obedience may look like singleness for you. It may look like singleness. And that actually brings us to the last point of our text here. Uh, for some people, neither marriage nor remarriage is an option allowed by Jesus. Um, for some, celibate singleness is the path of faithful obedience. And that brings us to verses 10 through 12, the service of singleness. Now, if, if Jesus' teaching has been difficult for you, you are, you're not alone. Look at verse 10. The disciples say to Jesus, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. They are having a hard time with what Jesus says. They're, they're really saying, well, if that's what a man is locked into with marriage, if that's your standard for marriage, it would be better to just avoid the whole thing and not marry at all. Right? They're really saying, if, if there's no way out of the marriage except sexual morality, then it's better to just stay single. They're, they're staggered by what Jesus says. And, and so if you are staggered by what Jesus says too, that means you're, you're probably understanding it correctly. Uh, Jesus has immensely high regard for marriage. But interestingly, Jesus actually agrees with the disciples in verse 11. He says to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom is given. Well, what is this saying? Um, the flow of the text seems the saying is, it's better not to marry. Jesus is saying not everybody can receive that. Not everybody will be called to that. But yes, to some whom it's given to, it is better not to marry. He's talking about singleness here. Now, singleness is not commanded for, for, um, for anybody anywhere in Scripture. Nowhere does the Bible say you must be single. Um, and it's not a state of life that God gives to everyone. But Jesus does here recognize that celibate singleness is something God gives to some people. Uh, Jesus acknowledges that celibate singleness is a legitimate and good calling to those that God gives it to. In, in the church, sometimes singleness ends up getting devalued, but the New Testament does not approach it that way at all. To illustrate this, Jesus appeals to a very unexpected type of person, a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were men in the ancient world who had physical issues, whether naturally from a birth defect or man-made, uh, where they were generally castrated, right? They had issues with their reproductive organs. They could not have children. Uh, they generally would not marry. They were single. They were single. And what Jesus says about them is very important. He says, first, some are born in this way. Some are born eunuchs. They've had a birth defect that's damaged their physical bodies. They cannot change this at all. There's nothing they can do about it. Others are made eunuchs by men, right? They've been castrated, uh, usually willingly, in order to oversee a king's harem of concubines. But then Jesus says something unexpected. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Is Jesus speaking literally here? No. No, he's not. He does not speak of physical, right, eunuchs here. But figuratively speaking, he's speaking of people who, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, 
choose to practice celibate singleness. They choose to basically live as, as eunuchs. That's the parallel. Those who choose not to marry or have children for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And that last part's really, really important. Uh, some people choose to be single for selfish reasons. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's wrong. But singleness is actually an honorable thing when that singleness is used for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, Paul actually describes how single Christians can be more useful to the Lord in the church than married people. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Looking down at verse 32 through 35, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that if you are single, if you are single, if you're not married, um, that you actually have a greater capacity to serve Christ and minister to others than married people do. That's a, that's a good thing. That's not devaluing singleness at all. That's actually really wonderful. Right? As, as a married man, I can't, um, you know, I can't just go meet with people at all hours of the night right, to talk to them about Jesus. I need to take care of my family. right? As a pastor, that's part of my biblical qualifications. I have to manage my family well. But if you're a single person, you can go talk to people about, you can meet a buddy for coffee at midnight right, to tell them about the Lord. That's a, that's a great um, opportunity that you have as a single person to serve Christ. There's difficulties that come with singleness, right? Like loneliness. But if you're walking with Christ, if you're seeking satisfaction to Him, if you're devoting your life to Him and saying, Lord, I, I have this single life, I want to use it for you, um, that loneliness will be ministered to by the Lord. So if you are single, use your singleness to serve Christ. Um, recognize you are uniquely able to do ministry. Right, in a way that married people cannot. That's being a eunuch for the, the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And Paul says that's a good thing. That lets you worry more about the Lord. Now, some people, of course, remain single their entire lives, and that's part of who Jesus is talking to here as well, people who have never been married. And out of obedience to Jesus, they are called to be like eunuchs. Right? Obedience for single Christians means uh, no sex right outside of marriage. And it means utilizing the freedom that comes with singleness to serve Christ. Right? That's what it means. That's what life looks like. Now, for others, based on what we've seen here in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, an unbiblical divorce may mean that obedience looks like singleness too if you have not already remarried. And I recognize it's a difficult thing to, to grapple with, right? But remember that God always meets us. He always helps us to be obedient to Him if that's what we're seeking. Um, you are not less of a person or less of a Christian because you remain single. Right? A marriage is not owed to us by God. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't make that a guarantee for every single person who ever lives. <clears throat> and for some, it may not be an obedient option after divorce. Right? 
But remember, you are more than your marital status. You're a Christian. Your primary identity is in Christ, not in whether you're married or single or, or, or divorced or remarried. It's in, it's in Christ. That's the most important place to focus. And so we see in our, our text how highly Jesus regards marriage, don't we? Jesus is guarding marriage pretty, pretty closely here in Matthew 19. And, and he holds it in such high regard, brothers and sisters, because it is a picture of his faithfulness to you. Marriage is a picture of Christ's love and care and devotion for you as his church. That's a very powerful thing, right? It's a picture of his faithfulness to us, his covenant love for us, for his bride. And Jesus does not want the picture of his love and care for you to be diminished in any way. And, and, and brothers and sisters, again, you will not ultimately find fulfillment in marriage or divorce or singleness. That's not where you're going to find rest for your soul. You will only find it in Christ, and He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never mistreat you. He'll never abandon you. He will never divorce you or be unfaithful. And in light of that, let us respond with obedient faithfulness to Him in our human relationships, whether we are single, married, remarried. Seek to honor the Lord in whatever situation he has you. Now let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you uh, that you are so unlike us, that you are faithful, uh, Lord, that you are good, that you are wise, that you do all things well. And Lord, we thank you that because of your faithfulness, we have the promise of the forgiveness of our sins. And Lord, that whatever decisions we have made in the past, you are gracious to cover that. And Lord, even gracious to bring good things from it. And Lord, we thank you uh, for the gift of marriage and how it is a display of Christ in the church. And we thank you, Lord, for those who are called to be single. And Lord, how that is an opportunity to serve you with uh, such great capacity. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to honor Christ in whatever relationship status we may be in, um, but that that would be our greatest goal, to honor you to love you, to obey you, to find our joy and our rest and our fulfillment in you. And Lord, we thank you that you are gracious to hear our prayers and to help us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.